If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drumple. Eventually, William Drumple. I mean, listen, can I just say, normally, normally, I get a little bit irritable when you're late, but today you have by far the most extraordinary reason I've ever had for your lateness. (laughs) Would you like to tell the class why you have arrived late to this podcast today? Well, the truth is that my pigeon has escaped. No, that's not what you... No, no, no. That is... See, that's plausible. But what you actually messaged me on the WhatsApp, I'll be another two minutes, another three minutes, another four minutes, because I'm putting my pigeons to bed. (laughs) That's what you said, you lunatic. It's true. Uh, for those for those who don't know my my, my after hours activities, I just have images of you going around to each and every one of them, kissing them all on the beak. Good night. Good night. That's ninety nine. That's more or less. What that. I have some very nice Mughlai Shirazi. Uh-huh. Uh, pigeons who are, are fantails with uh, with gorgeous markings, and uh, there's now about twenty three of them, twenty four of them. And yeah. um, but anyway, they escaped, so they had to be put to bed. Can I just once again cast a, a bright light <laughs> on the differences between our existences? Because I dropped the kids at school, then had to circle back to take some rugby kit that was forgotten at home, and then got stuck in a traffic jam, and then still made it on time. <laughs> but, you know, differences, differences in our textured existences. Anyway, I highly recommend uh, keeping pigeons. Can I also say that, you know, you are a modern man, a modern Britain India, because had you been a man, and we're going to cover this because we're covering (laughs) food, we're covering Indian food food. and the British relationship with Indian food in this podcast. But had you been born in a different era, those pigeons wouldn't have had a chance. (laughs) (laughs) That's also true. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Those pigeons would have been well tandoored by now. In a curry. Kebabbed, skewered. We've had just the most glorious time uh, researching this little palate cleanser of a mini series. We all thought that it was getting a bit much when we had Houthis and Hezbollah and the Islamic Revolution back to back. So we thought we could yeah. do something a bit, a little bit lighter and, and a little bit more uh, pleasurable. Yeah. yeah. So we're talking about Indian food and how it has changed from the start of the East India Company arriving in India right up until 1947 partition and today, today, where even now there are massive fights that go on here in Britain about who invented the Balti, who owns the Balti. And who invented chicken tikka masala? Was it in the Moti Mahal Deluxe in Delhi or was it in Glasgow? This is a crucial 
matter that's actually reached parliament there have been parliamentary debates on this there's no mucking around with the subject matter on this program i mean you said it's sort of less contentious than you know the kind of events we've been discussing i would argue that maybe it people feel very strongly about this are we allowed to introduce this series anita by getting you to tell your story about making kedgeri at school oh, in essex okay okay, yes. okay. <laughs> um william is endlessly amused by the fact that i am an, an essex girl and a proud essex girl a proud essex girl a proud essex girl something about being both essex and punjabi that kind of and just gets <laughs> that just gets every genetic sort of <laughs> combustible five star combustible rating imaginable exactly well so in my school which was quite an old fashioned school they had a a, a rather lo- i mean an absolutely lovely teacher Miss Wallace, who did home economics, which was trying to civilise the absolute monsters in a year <laughs> and try to teach us how to survive on things that weren't in tins or beans and toast and stuff. So we'd, we'd have cookery lessons. And uh, I mean, it was all fine. And it was flans and pancakes and, you know, a pie or stuff like that. And then she um, she said, well, next week, we're going to do an Indian-inspired dish. And I was like, oh, very excited. <laughs> me, me, it's all about me. <laughs> and she gave us this uh, recipe and we had to bring in all the ingredients with kedgeri. And she said, it's inspired by an Indian dish. And I thought, well, it sounds a bit like kitchari, which we eat at home, which is a rice and lentil dish. If you're ill, it is your go-to medicine in, in any Indian household. They will give exactly. you kitchari for anything. I mean, literally anything. Um, so I went home with this shopping list for my mother. And first of all, she took enormous umbrage at the fact that there was curry powder on the ingredients. What the hell is <laughs> Which we will this? come back to as well. We'll, come, we'll circle back to that. Itself, but then, yeah. I mean, there were all sorts of things that she was just appalled by, like eggs, and fish <laughs> and rice. What the hell is and this? And probably in those days, Uncle Ben's rice rather than basmati. Well, it wasn't basmati. I'll tell you that much. Um, oh. So, yeah, I, I can't remember what it was. It could well have been Uncle Ben's. That's what I remember in the kitchen. Uh, on the very rare occasions we had rice, we had tiny little packets of... Oh, Uncle Ben's. <laughs> and this is the same period of Scottish history, we should say, that when if you wanted to get olive oil, yes. you had to go to the Chiropody Department of to Boots. To the Chiropody Department <laughs> <laughs> People used to rub it on their feet. That was the only use of olive oil. So you used foot oil in your cooking. <laughs> so oh, so nice. the neighbours would have believed. Yeah. Yum. Um, well, <laughs> actually, I'm having a flashback now. No, you know, we didn't use Uncle Ben's. We, My mum specially went out to go and get a little bag of rice because that was what was stipulated on Miss Wallace's um, shopping list. But actually, Indians, even in Essex, would go shopping for ingredients on a mass, like an extinction level event scale <laughs> so there'd be an Indian mark cash and carry and she would buy like this sack, sack. of rice yeah, yeah. a sack of rice that was much bigger than me or a sack of flour for chapatis anyway so I took all of this in hope in my heart thinking my moment to shine this is my culture sort of I don't know my mom says it's not but Miss Wallace says it is <laughs> I did everything did everything right because you know me I'm a good girl you are it was disgusting Disgusting. <laughs> it was so awful. Normally, you know, everybody would fall on this dish that we'd made in home economics and just devour it. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody wanted to bar us. <laughs> Least of all, and poor Indian Essex girl, trying very hard to be proud of my culture-ish. <laughs> 
An Anglo-Indian kidgeri, what could be often quite disgusting, cold boiled eggs sliced in it. Yes, that was in there. And there was sort of onions and there was fish. There was flaked fish, which, I mean, honestly, we were such imbeciles. I'm sure we didn't cook it properly. So raw fish. (laughs) (laughs) It was was a gastronomic abomination is what we produced. But there is... I think a serious point in this story and in this episode, because food is a fabulous example of the Brits completely misunderstanding everything <laughs> about it. Just yeah. a bit. <laughs> not only getting the names wrong, uh, and not only not only mangling everything up, but uh, completely misunder- misunderstanding everything. The difference between kitchery and kedgeree is is as different as coal and diamonds. Mark coal and say. diamonds, exactly. Both carbon <laughs> based. So we should say also that there are two fabulous books that we've both been reading. Oh, this yes, week. aren't they gorgeous? Um, and we should, we should fess up that they are the sources of everything good and funny that we found this week. <laughs> One is a wonderful book by a New Zealand cookery writer. I think it's almost the best social history of the British in India I've ever read called The Raj at Table. By it's David about Burton. so much more than the food, isn't it? Yep. And it's terribly funny. Every every second page makes you laugh. 1993 came out came out a while ago, but it's very very good. Still in print, Faber book. And then the other one is by a friend of mine, Lizzie Collingham, Elizabeth Collingham, who is a grown up academic with a proper academic job, but wrote a fabulous book called Curry that reads like a dream, uh, and is the story of that dish, which of course is is the dish that your mum said does not exist in India, um, mm-hmm. which is the great and important story behind the story that mm. one of the many things that the british sort of invented about india that weren't true and, and it, it has been an absolute pleasure to deep dive into some of the old texts that you know certainly we've used as source material for our books because it forced me to go back to emily eden who was subjected to many a banquet <laughs> she was sometimes reluctantly traveling around india i hadn't realized quite how much i'd written about food in all my books in white moogles and last moogle we've got well, it's, it's absolutely packed with um, um, with people talking about what uh, they're reading. <laughs> but it's interesting. It's yeah. interesting because, you know, it charts not just uh, the way in which sort of social cohesion works between the Brits and the Indians um, in a new country that, first of all, they've discovered and then they end up sort of mastering. But it also tells you a little bit about the differences in culture between the two, their, their attitudes towards eating. And, and this is an equally important point, the similarities. And that, in a sense, is quite a good place to start. And I remember when I first read David Burton's book, this was the thing which which struck me because the point he makes right at the beginning, and it's a lovely point, mm. is that because British cooking and Indian cooking could not be more different today, we assume it was always so. But he makes the wonderful point that when the Tudors first turn up at Surat and found a factory in what's now Gujarat, the cooking of both peoples was very, very similar. Yes. And that the standard dish in England was a sort of uh, a fruit stew. Can you remember in one of our earlier episodes, we talked about how Henry Hyde made money from importing currants Mm -hmm. during the early Elizabethan period. And I cracked the hilarious joke, which I'll restate, which is, Currency? You didn't I, laugh I, enough then. I, oh, no. I missed it I at mean, the time. I, just, I can't understand. Currency. <laughs> no, he did. It's true. He made a, he made a fortune from, from currency. And um, David Burton opens with a chicken pie recipe from England in 1615. And in it is chicken, currants, raisins, cinnamon, mace, salt, and spice. And that's because, of course, 
in Tudor England, as in India, in the age before refrigeration, meat was often a little bit high and you needed lots of spice in your food in order to hide that. But at the same time in India, people were eating things like what they would call a dumpak fowl, or what, the, what certainly the English factors in Surat call a dumpak fowl, which is a fowl, a chicken stewed in butter and stuffed with spices, almonds and raisins. Moreover, in Elizabethan England, forks were only just coming into fashion. So most people ate scooping it up with bread, just like was done in India. And then the final thing is, of course, that in India, the chili had not yet reached North India when the English got there. So the English got to North India before the chili did. Mm. The chili originated in the Caribbean. The first European to ever come across the, the chili pepper was Columbus. Uh, in the Caribbean. I mean, one one of the most marvellous things in reading, uh, I think it was in the David Burton book, is that, you know, you have spice vendors begging the Brits to understand that, you know, spices didn't need to be as hot. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't, they were being forced to grind curry powder and later like, you really don't need this many chilies in this powder. But the other thing is that after a meal in India, you had pun. And after a meal in Tudor England, you had something called voidy, which was not dissimilar to pan. So when these guys first turn up, these East India Company spice merchants living in what they called a factory, which was a trading post on the Indian coast, they were actually surprised by how similar the two cultures were. And the story of Anglo-Indian cooking is the story of 200 years of divergence from what was initially a very, very similar way of eating. Can I just circle back to this, This what became known in Elizabethan England as dumb-poked fowl. I love that, dumb-poked. But it's dumb-poked. Which is dumb-poked. Is yeah, dumb-poked yeah. Which, and we should explain for those who don't, you know, eat slow. as much as we do. <laughs> it, well, no, the dumb-poke is, is a, a specific way of, it is slow cooking, but you have a big, because I love cooking, you have a, a, a and pot. And you cook very well. That's very kind of you. A, a, a massive pot, and you slow cook it within its own steam a little bit. So you put a sort of a layer of pastry or it would be, you know, sort of chapati flour over the top and seal it. And that's a dumpach. And that's originally an avadi, a laknavi way of cooking, I believe. Apparently so. I mean, you know, you know Punjabis, we just claim everything. <laughs> this, is, this is how we've always done it. But no, I think you're right. I mean, they also I've heard it's it's a, a Mughal innovation. But whatever it was, on Elizabethan tables, that would have been the first thing, the first interaction, I suppose, with anything Indian was this idea of this dumb-poked foul kind of mirror image. Um, very interesting, though, that these things sound more like puddings to me than they do like savoury dishes. I mean, I don't know about you, but they sound awful. <laughs> well, this is the recipe here, which I love, which is for a little bit later, but it's the same sort of thing. This is a, an early British cookbook in India, and it recommends what it calls bird one stew. Bird one is on the outskirts of Calcutta. And it says, take a roasted or boiled fowl, cut it into pieces, and put them into a stew pan. Put in two ladles full of soup with two dozen anchovies, a glass of white wine, some melted butter, some boiled or roasted onions, pickled oysters. Wow. Cayenne pepper, the first appearance of pepper in, in British cookbooks. Stir and let it warm through and add a little lemon juice. Well, this is prepared on purpose. The fowl or chicken is only half roasted or boiled. If boiled, the water or broth is used instead to make soup. Fish may be used and essence of anchovy instead of the fish. What strikes me is when this is prepared on purpose, because one would think this is entirely accidentally chucked <laughs> in the pan. <laughs> 
Sort of pickled oysters. But but what I love is that you have a map of world discovery in that very dish, mm. and and you see that in other dishes from the 1600s as well, because you start to have you know rice palau kind of dishes coming to England. You start having chutneys. Chutney being another, along with punch. Yes. Two early Indian words in English. Chutney, chut. To lick, yeah, something that makes your mouth water. Uh huh. And you drink it down with punch, which is so named because it had five ingredients. Which comes from the Hindi of panch or Punjabi of panch. Panch, five ingredients. Punjab, panch, that comes from the same stem. But but also, you know, mango achar and, and, and what they called, I, lo- I love this because I wonder if they knew, they called mm. something sawny sauce. Sony sauce. It's sort of Walkman boiled down. Well, but Sony actually means if they would have travelled through or they would have picked up these words, and I, I can only see this now through you know being bilingual, Sony means beautiful. In what language? In Punjabi? Sony is Punjabi. Sony sauce. So, you know, you start looking at the etymology. <laughs> beautiful and things, sauce. Yeah, some, you know, sort of, some shyster <laughs> slopping something over their, their food as they dock, saying, yeah, this is beautiful sauce, Sony sauce. And they think that's the name of it. And that comes back to England as Sony sauce. I think you'd have thought in well, in Urdu it's Khubsurat, and in Hindi Sony it's Sundar. Beautiful, beautiful girl, Sony Kuri. You may not have heard that many times. But <laughs> I'm telling you, that's what it means. But we should talk about the differences with with um, attitudes to meat, because the Brits had a meaty palate, didn't they? Which was not in India necessarily, or not Absolutely in all parts. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And in the very early days, the Indians complain about how much meat the, <laughs> the Brits are eating. So you have a, one of the, some of the early observers of the Brits in their early factories in Surat, and they say that the Brits eat four times as much meat in a week as the Indians do in a year. Oh, yes, I saw that. Yes. And, and, and how much more weight they put on as a result of this than any, any Indian native. And this is, this is, yeah, something which continues right through to the end, that the, the, the Brits are, are yeah. eating far, far more than, than the Indians that are much well, I mean, more from, overweight. From dear old Emily Eden, who, you know, writes these letters to her sister um, traveling. And this is in Victorian England, so this is, you know, later than the 1600s, of course. But I think this is from 1838 in her Up the Country Letters. She says, uh, you know, we had a very small dinner party, but a full room. And then she talks about the people she talks to. She says, we had a most excellent dinner for which all the treasures of the kitchen had been ransacked. And I think all the fowls of the air and the beasts of the earth had been slaughtered. <laughs> She's so good. I mean, meat figures very, very large when, when the Brits came to India. And it was something that the Indians had to get on board with. And when, you know, it becomes from the, you know, the East India Company to the Raj, and they find themselves serving in a lot of these kitchens. There are sort of all sorts of ways they have to deal with it because, you know, there are a lot of Brahminical cultures which won't touch meat. So if you were of high standing, you would find that the very rich people would even build two kitchens. One would be called the, you know, Ingresi or Bilaiti yeah. kitchen, which would prepare the meat dishes and would probably uh, employ. Um, somebody from a, a lower caste or a Mohammedan who would be able to, as they would call them then, a Muslim who would be able to handle the kind of meats that the Brits liked. And then a Brahminical kitchen, pure vegetarian and and, and adhering to the, the rules of Ayurveda and, and, and the old sacraments of, of Hinduism. And what's interesting is that uh, in this early period, as we say, the early period, you, you have as much in common as you have divergence. And in this early period, when many Englishmen are living with Indian wives and girlfriends, before 
the kind of racism has driven them apart in the 17th and in the 18th centuries, you find that many Brits do become vegetarian too. And the, the famous uh, John Zephaniah Holwell, who wrote the much-criticized account of the Black Hole of Calcutta, which he seems to exaggerate the numbers very much, he was a vegetarian. And there's another wonderful character that I write about in my white moguls called Hindu Stuart. And Charles Hindu Stuart was an Ulsterman who had uh, a whole variety of Indian wives and his own Brahmins and a buggy which follows him around with a cavalcade of children's carriages and a pulky load of little babes. And he is not only vegetarian, he employs a group of Brahmins whose ritual purity he regarded as essential for properly dressing his Hindu family's food. So you find there's a, a lot of crossover at this, at this period. And, and a lot of them in Surat, a lot of these early British traders are dressed in Indian outfits. They're wearing pajamas. And if you look at their wills, they have lists of all their goods. And they've got things like pictans, which are, um, which are places where they keep their betel nut and spittoons. So there's a whole lot of material culture, which indicates that they're following Indian ways of living. Can I just, um, again, come back to the meat issue? Because I can't get over how much meat was consumed by, you know, the Brits in India. Because also yeah. it's a hot country. So it's like, it's it's harder to digest these things in a hot climate. You know, you just don't feel up to it. But, you know, they gave it the good old British heave-ho to try and get it down there. <laughs> um, but this this wonderful detail from Lizzie Collingham, your friend, who says, um, the British in India consumed stupendous amounts of meat. A surgeon who visited Surat, the place that you're talking about, in the 1670s, the period that you're, you're talking about, William, calculated that in one month more animals were killed to supply the British table than were generally slaughtered for the entire year to feed the Muslims. And 17th century India abounded with game and British visitors were completely delighted by the diverse kind of meats, she writes, which were so plentiful because many of the natives eat no kind of flesh at all and therefore they were cheap as if they were not worth valuing. So, you know, they were sort of hitting jackpot here. If you had a a taste for it. You could get it cheaply. You could get it everywhere. You could blast it out of the sky yourself if you felt like it. And, you know, well, hey, Christmas every day. And then you kind of move to the early presidency towns. So Bombay, Madras and Calcutta are all founded. Surat is abandoned. And you have a lot of Brits suddenly hanging out together in uh, this new environment. And it sounds... Absolutely awful. This is this is, uh, <laughs> this is William Hickey, who's a wonderful diarist of the eighteenth century, describing dinner in Calcutta. Um, and he says, um, "In this party, I first saw the barbarous custom of pelleting each other with little balls of bread made like pills across the table, which is practiced by even the fair sex." Some people could discharge them with such force as to cause considerable pain when struck in the face. Mr. Daniel Barwell was such a proficient that he could, at a distance of three or four yards, snuff out a candle, and that time several times successively. This strange trick, fitter for savages than polished society, produced many quarrels, and at last uh, entirely ceased from the following occurrence. And then he tells the story of this guy who, uh, who is challenged to a duel over some pelleting. And this produced a duel which the unfortunate pelleter was shot through the body, lay upon his bed many months and never perfectly recovered. And this put a complete stop to the absurd practice. Wait a minute. Is pelleting meant to be an Indian thing? No. This is, no. This is, I've never, this literally is, this never heard of this. Badly behaved Brits in oh, the 18th Brits, century. Oh, Brits. Okay, yeah. Brits abroad. Got you. No, no, got not, you, got you, got uh, you. not Indians. Well, I just one. suddenly thought, since it's a food fight, is all this is. It is, is. a food fight. The, um, the other thing is that, you know, the Brits brought with them their own 
culinary habits of, of the times that they ate. So, you know, usually tiffin would be had by Indians at about three o'clock, which would be, you know, a very full meal at different dishes, about four or five of them. And and the Brits would also take this on, but they would also then have barakana, which was the big dinner afterwards, which would be like this, depending on your wealth and status, could be a really sumptuous affair. Just again, I mean, it sounds like I'm obsessed with the meat consumption, and I am. <laughs> I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm just astonished by it. Uh, it's just another gorgeous fact from this um, Lizzie Collingham book, which I recommend to everybody, is that you know these some of the tables of some of the most wealthy in Britain in, in the 1700s we're, we're now in were so vast and so big and so much slaughter took place to sort of fill these tables. Emma Roberts writes of this time that She's she was in India. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And and as a companion to her married sister. And she was just seeing carcass after carcass coming out onto the table. And this book goes on to surmise that actually the East India Company bringing these eating habits of the British squirearchy, as she puts it, to India created gentlemen who consumed as much as 74 kilograms of meat a year compared to the average, which was about 40. And you had one or two of them reaching the incredible weight of 40 stone because of this that's, diet that's in a big India. Chat. So one of the th things that happens during this period of history, as you move from the arrival of the Brits in India in the, in the, in the 16th century through to the 18th century, is that the time of dinner moves. We have a reference to Thomas Twining in 1779 saying dinner was served at four, which is the same time that you say that Tiffin was Tiffin, had. yeah. Yeah. This was much in the Indian style, he writes. Uh, he's visiting a French general called Benoit Duboin. So this is a sort of uh, Franco-Indian household. And he says dinner was very much in the Indian style, pilaus and curries, variously prepared in abundance, fish, poultry, and kid. The dishes were spread out over a large table fixed in the middle of the hall and were, in fact, a banquet for a dozen persons, although there was no one to partake it but the general and myself. Wow. And that, again, is very much par for the course. But then you see dinner sort of becoming later. Well, this barakana, is that what, yeah. what, what it would be? The big dinner, bar, bara meaning big and kana meaning big eat. By 1805, Lord Wellesley is reporting that his dinner hour is 5pm. And by 1830, Mrs. Pringle tells us it was 6.30pm. <laughs> in 1846, Mrs. Clemens, an army major's wife, informs us that at seven o'clock it was the usual time. So you see mm. the time changing, but no one eats later than the moguls. And the moguls don't even begin to eat, as is often the case still in Delhi, rather like with the Spaniards, until very late. And when I was writing The Last Mogul, I'll just read a little bit from this. This is Baharashah Zafar, the last Mughal emperor in the 1850s. And his dinner began no earlier than 8.30pm, when most of the British were already well tucked up in their beds. Quail, stew, venison, lamb, kidneys on sweet naan called shirmal, yakni, fish kebabs, oh, and meat stewed in oranges mm -hmm. were Zafar's mm -hmm. favourite dishes. Though on festive occasions, the Red Fork kitchens were capable of producing an astonishing variety of uh, Mughal cuisine. And the Bazamir Kir, which is a wonderful book of the pleasures of the Mughal court, describes 25 different varieties of bread, 25 different kinds of pilau and biryanis, and 35 different sorts of spiced stews, and 50 different puddings, as well as remarkable varieties of relishes and pickles, all to be eaten according to the Bazamir Kir, to the sound of singers performing guzzles, while the fragrance of musk, saffron, sandalwood, and rosewood fills the air. But this is the point that I'd like to go before we go on to chilies. Let's just talk about how people 
finish their meals. And Zafa has a great fondness for orange marmalade, which he likes to have at the end of his dinner. And he's banned from having it by his Hakim, his medical doctor, Hakim Asanullah Khan. And Ghalib comments when he hears about this. Ghalib is the great Urdu poet. He says that the only thing that a gentleman should have after dinner is a mango. And at one gathering, a group of Delhi intellectuals are discussing what the qualities of a good mango should be. In my view, says Ghalib, there are only two essential points about mangoes. They should be sweet and they should be plentiful. In his old age, Ghalib became worried about his declining appetite for his favorite fruit and wrote to a friend to express his anxieties. He never ate an evening meal, he told his correspondent. Instead, on hot summer's night, he would sit down to eat the mangoes when my food was fully digested. And I tell you bluntly, I'd eat them until my belly was bloated and I could hardly breathe. Even now I eat them at the same time of day, but never more than 10 or 12, or if they're of a large kind, only six or seven. I completely commend that way of eating mangoes. I do, I do much the same myself. Just, it gets even better. Just at the end, he says, he's writing to his friend, talking about the pleasures of his life, and he talks about the mangoes, and he goes on, there are 17 bottles of good wine in the pantry, he says, so I read all day and drink all night. Well, that's a way to live. I'm just going to read you another account and then we'll go to the break and we'll come back because we haven't mentioned hotness. We have not mentioned the chilli. That's very unlike you. (laughs) (laughs) And that's because it doesn't actually make an appearance yet, but it will. So just, again, the kind of food, we're talking 1700s now, which Brits are experiencing. So either through their um, interface with sort of the moguls who like to put on a show and put on lots of dishes to impress them, but they sort of take that on themselves. And this is um, have you ever come across a man called Frederick Shaw? Frederick Shaw, I think, is the son of one of the governor generals. Uh, and yeah. he is he's rather a dissident and writes against the East India Company. Yes. And it sort of starts with his judging them on how much they eat and just really thinking that they're a bit disgusting. So um, this, is, this is his idea. Turkeys that you could not even see over. Round of beef, boiled roast beef, stewed beef, loin of veal uh, for a side dish and a roast big capon as large as hen's turkeys. Large bowls of curry and rice placed on the table. That was just the first course. After the outsized joints had been cleared, a second course of beef, steak, pigeon pie, told you about your pigeons, chicken drumsticks, more curry and rice, quails, and ortolans, which I don't even know what they are, piled up in hetacombs. Fruits and nuts were then placed on the table. Frederick Shaw was completely disgusted by this, and he he described this idea of um, this show of plenty as being absurd and a universal practice in this country. And the fact that, you know, you would always have wine and beer along with this, <laughs> and you would have this twice a day. So you would have it at about Tiffin o'clock, about three or four o'clock, and then you would have it again later on in the day for Barakana. Emma Roberts, who I mentioned before, who is this wonderful, witty writer who was in India at the time, her digestion is shot to hell after <laughs> a brief session. She can't bear it I'm not surprised if she was eating with Frederick Shaw. I mean, so she sort of says to the, the servants in, in the place that she's staying, look, um, could I, you know, a hare has been hunted. All she wants <laughs> is a roast hare for dinner. That's all she wants. So she sort of hands over this dead hare that's been freshly culled um, and says, could you just, you know, roast that for me for dinner? And then it, she comes out and it's nowhere there at all. Nothing. Is there and she's like, Where, where's my hair? And they said, No, 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 no piles of these huge piles of steaming meat. She goes, That and the servants say that's a poor man's dish. 
we don't put it on our master's table because it would be humiliating for him. So there's kind of this conspiracy to show, you know, just how much there is. And what is also very interesting, and you get this from the Lizzie Collingham book, is that what happens to the leftovers, because you can't possibly consume this much, right? But most Indians, most of the poor won't eat this food because, again, you know, it's it's pork mixed with beef mixed with God knows what. So it's sort of distributed among the Christian poor, of whom there aren't that many, and the rest is chucked away, just chucked away. So it is like, you know, you can see why Frederick Shaw and others like him are just appalled. Anyway, join us after the break uh, when we come back and put a little bit of spice in life. The spice that matters, the spice I live for, chili. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back. So, Anita was very worried that there wasn't enough hotness in the first half of this episode. I like a little bit of hotness, yes. So we're going to talk about how you heat up your meal in India. Now, it's an important part of the story that, of course, chili only arrives in the 1540s in India with the Portuguese. But before then, India was well known as the home, as far as Europeans were concerned, of black pepper, which was the other great spice preceding the chili. And it's the major export through India. A lot of it comes actually from further east. There's a massive import to classical India of pepper from what we would call Indonesia, the East Indies. And Kerala was a major emporium, not just for Indian pepper, but for pepper from East Indies, from, from the islands like Run, which where the nutmeg was from, and, and other places. And in Sicily, Inland, there is a wonderful first century Roman mosaic that has a depiction of India. And she is this sort of large breasted Bollywood figure uh, that actually looks like it's based on an Indian picture of a Yakshi or something of the sort, some Indian artistic model that they've they've borrowed for. A Yakshi is what, for those who don't know? A voluptuous tree spirit uh, that figures very prominently in the Buddhist art of the period. And behind her, is a whole sort of foliage of trails of pepper vines. And it's clear that while quite a lot of the things in the picture, like elephants, were rather unfamiliar to the artist, pepper vines were something he'd clearly seen or seen a very good picture of because they're very accurately depicted. And this is what the Romans came to India for. And at the time of Pliny and Strabo, that's early first century CE, Pliny writes that there are 250 vessels a year bringing these spices from Kerala to the Red Sea coast of Egypt. So Pliny the Elder is a puritanical naval commander from northern Italy, and he's particularly incensed that this drain of Roman gold into Indian pockets. He didn't like the taste of pepper, and he was unimpressed by the gemstones, which he says the other thing that people were spending money, uh, sending money to India to buy. And in his natural history, he describes India, and I quote, the sink of the world's precious metals. There is no year which it does not drain our empire of at least 55 million silver sesterces. The silver sesterce is worth about a dollar today. So $55 million of uh, Roman money goes to India to buy all this stuff. And interestingly, later on, 
you find that Indy Pepper gets as far as Hadrian's Wall, that there is wow. a, a character called Gambak, son of Tapo, and he's spending two denarius, according to his little writing tablet, which turned up at the fort of Vindolanda in Northumbria, uh, on Pepper. So it's reaching right across, even to a, an ordinary legionary stuck in the cold of, of Hadrian's Wall, looking at these sort of Scots waving spears at him or Picts waving spears at him from a distance. And then later, when the Huns besiege Rome, in the 5th century, they're bought off with a ransom of pepper, mm. which is fascinating. Attila is paid off with black peppercorns, but it becomes an absolute essential of Roman cooking. And, and some of the Roman cookbooks often uh, involve vast quantities of pepper, even in the puddings. One of the first cookbooks, I think, is the Greek and Roman cookbook. Um, now I'm going to say it wrong, aren't I? Apicius de Re Cocinaria, which dates back, I think, to the 4th century. And it is filled with recipes that have not just pepper, interestingly, and, and pepper, I, I want to talk about what pepper looks like. You said it was very um, accurately represented, but for most people, pepper is just going to be this shriveled up black beady, you know, peppercorn. But that early Roman recipe book has pepper, cumin, coriander, and cinnamon. So I think that's, you know, very interesting, again, following the trade routes and changing the tastes of the people. But the peppercorns that you talked about, you know, which were beautifully represented, they look like long catkins, you know, they're red little sort of almost tiny mini grapes that come down into a, a narrow tip. If you've ever been lucky enough to go to Kew Gardens, they have a lot of them in their hothouse. And I was really shocked because I hadn't seen, you know, pepper in the wild before. But if you travel to Kerala as well, you know, they still grow an enormous amount of pepper there. And the, the original name for it when it came here was piper longum or long pepper. Um, and the English word pepper, they think, is, is derived from the, the Hindi word, which is what they called it, pipali. So pepper, pipali, all of that as a gift from India. Yeah. And this is a very, very early Indian export. There are apparently grains of Indian pepper found up the mummified nose of, of Pharaoh Ramesses II. So even in the third millennia, uh, BC. This is something which uh, which India is exporting, and in the Red Sea port Berenike, which is where the Indian traders landed this stuff, they found whole rooms full of uh, of pots containing Indian peppercorns, and the English word pepper comes from the Tamil pipali. So it was an early etymological link. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at the cost of these spices in in Roman times, and they were incredibly expensive in ancient times. Um, you know, often valued more than their weight in gold. So a pound of pepper, you were just talking about, you know, Attila being paid in, in pepper. A pound of pepper could cost as much as a slave. Just to give you an idea, human life was worth a pound of pepper. Uh, saffron, by the way, saffron, you know, the crocus um, stamen that, that is used a lot in, in Indian cooking and, and palaos, and you're you know, now here a lot in, in Britain and the West. Saffron was worth its weight in silver. So just imagine that, you know, these things were very, very valuable, but not just, not just for their taste though. They also sort of thought they had medicinal properties as well, which is something we may come on to because it's a, there's a lot of um, thought behind what foods should go together as far as Ayurveda is concerned, which is a very ancient Indian art of, of putting hot, cold, spicy and not spicy together. So the chili pepper, which is the thing that we now associate most with Indian heat, only arrives in India via the Portuguese, and it arrives in Goa in the 1540s. And at that time, 
there is a traveler who mentions that there are three separate varieties of chili that have been newly imported into India and is being used all up the West Coast. Uh, and from that point, it spreads over the whole of the subcontinent. And the people who take it with them are the Marathas. When the Mughal Empire begins to collapse after the death of Aurangzeb in 1707, the Marathas have already got a taste for the chili pepper, which they've got from Goa, which borders their lands. And it's their armies that take the chili into North India uh, in the course of the 18th century. Isn't that mm. extraordinary? I had no idea about that before I read this. So, I mean, just can we just sum that up with we have Columbus to thank for my joyous yeah. moments at table? Really? It's true. And the other thing we should, have, of course, talk about if we're talking about food in Goa is the Vindaloo. Oh, yes. That's right. <laughs> which, which is an extraordinary story. And turns out that. Vindaloo is merely a Goan adaptation of a Portuguese dish. Yeah, this is thrilling because I thought it was a, maybe a Tamil word that no. had been corrupted, but it's not. Yeah, this is amazing. The original Portuguese dish is called carne de vino e alos. I, my Portuguese, I don't have any Portuguese, so I'm laughing okay. that. <laughs> okay. Did you know what? My uh, philosophy is put on a hard hat and run at it fast. Okay. Be fast. Carne de vino e alos, yeah, uh, which is perfect. meat cooked in wine vinegar and garlic. And vindaloo is just an English uh, corruption of a vino de alos. I think that's amazing because that is the um, ultimate you know, the tough, curry tough house dish today. Of, yeah, of showing off, isn't it? A vindaloo, very very hot curry. Um, gosh, okay, so that's completely disabused me of a notion. I did not know that. It's the Mughals who carry it north, and by the early nineteenth century the people of Delhi have taken it into their lives. There's a wonderful description of people going to the steps of the Jammu Masjid in the early 19th century, where the dastan go, the storytellers gather at the base of the steps. And according to some of these accounts, Delhi Wallers used to surprise visitors from outside by taking them there to eat without telling them about the pot of hot chilies with which Jani, the famous kebab maker of the Jabba Masjid, would marinate his kebabs. And uh, there's a wonderful character that I write about in Last Mogul called Mulvi Muhammad Bakr, who's the editor of the Delhi Urdu Akbar. And he has a poet's son called Azad. And he talks about taking a stranger who hadn't eaten for a whole day. He stretched his jaws wide and fell on the kebab. And instantly, it was as if his brains had been blown out of his mouth by gunpowder. He leapt back with a howl. But the Delhi Waller who brought him replied, we live here only for the sharp taste. So the people of Delhi, by 1900, had taken this on to be their thing, that they were chili lovers. And Zafar, the last Mughal emperor, is forbidden chili by his doctor, Hakim Asnullah Khan, but has it anyway. And Hakim Asnullah Khan in the palace diary has always been called to Zafar's bedchamber because he's suffering terrible uh, uh, stomach complaints. And in the end, he promises that he really will give up the cayenne pepper. Uh, in well, August I mean, we all promise that. None of us mean it. My father was so alarmed. I can eat. I think I can eat the hottest thing. I've never met anyone who can eat hotter food than me. Honestly, that's an uh, honest. I will challenge you to that at Eater Island this summer when I'm matey, back. <laughs> you will melt. I have. I have honestly cast iron, Teflon, asbestos constitution. Have you travelled in northeast India? Have you had the naga chili, which they have up? Yes, in, I uh, have a naga chili sauce at home. Uh, <laughs> but you haven't had the naga chilies as cooked by the nagas. No, I haven't. That is true. But I have also. I have with my scrambled egg. Carolina Reaper sauce, which is the hottest chili on the planet. 
with and guarantee you're going to lose this. this we will video breakfast. it. Just to yeah, yeah. Like Zafar, I promised that I wouldn't do that anymore, but I still do because it's so nice. Um, just one other thing on the traveling of the chili around India. What's very interesting is that it also becomes conflated with the characteristics of the people who eat it. So there is a North Indian scholar in the 1800s who says that the Marathas have a you know nature that was dry and hot because they put chilies in everything they eat. <laughs> and that this is what makes them sort of so warlike and determined in character. And in contrast, the Mughals eat you know rice palaus, almond sweetmeats, and Central Asian fruit, and therefore become soft and ineffectual, which is why you know the, the, the great warriors of the Deccan are able to defeat them. And there is something that lies in sort of ancient Hindu scripture with this, because what you eat, you know, as far as Ayurveda, it changes your temperament. I mean, have you come across all these different yeah. types of food? You have like sattva, rajas and, and tamas, different types of food, which can change your mood and you have to balance them completely. And they all have different meanings. So sattva, which is kind of purity, it's, it's purity, knowledge and harmony. It's, you know, goodness, joy, and if satisfaction. if you are pure, you are sattvic, aren't you? You are sattvic, exactly. Rajas, which is passion, action, energy, motion. Rajvik is, is what you eat there. It's a sort of much more luxurious thing. And tamas, which I must eat a lot of. Uh, impurity, laziness and darkness is what you get from <laughs> eating those foods. But I wanted to look at what, what were the foods that sort of gave you this. So sattvic is all your fruits and veg which is fine. Uh, Rajasik is onions and garlic and chili and tamasic foods, which make you sort of impure, dark and evil. Uh, meat, burgers, cheesecake. They put on this handy, <laughs> handy leaflet <laughs> to tell me the error of like, Burgers and yeah. cheesecake. Very, very bad. Refined foods, basically, is what they're saying. But before we close, we should say again about some of the other things which the Brits and the Portuguese introduced to India. And they're quite surprising. So today, of course, we think of the aloo, the potato, the humble potato as being a, a quintessentially Indian vegetarian dish and, and sort of it's essentially in, in aloo paratas or pau bhaji or uh, any of these, these basic Indian dishes, but it's not there until the Brits bring it. And when I was writing White Moguls and going through all James Kirkpatrick's letters, he goes to quite inordinate lengths to get potatoes to Hyderabad because no one uh, is growing it there. And then eventually he manages to get a patch going at the back of the residency uh, and he grows it. And he says that he's had his first potatoes for two years in 1802 uh, because wow. there'd been no, no, no potatoes available. Here's the quote. Uh, I have grown now a good supply of potatoes, being a vegetable which I like very much but have not tasted for two years or more. But even so, it's, it's interesting what the... Are the Brits eating in the residency? This is yet another list of excessive uh, British eating. But Kirkpatrick has a sort of fascination with the amount that two of his colleagues eat. The doctor at the residency is called Dr. Ewer, and he's got, a, he's got a, a very hungry wife. And he writes, the young couple's consumption of tea and sugar alone is at least double mine. The councilman, the, the bearer, tells me that a couple of grilled chickens were regularly served up by their direction at breakfast table and two foils boiled down to mulligatawny soup for their tiffin. The consequence of which, as might well be expected, is that the lady was seized by a fever, which according to Green and Ewer's account, absolutely endangered her life. It has now left her, and although extremely weak, the councilman has received instructions to provide daily calves feet jellies until further orders and you may recollect from experience he writes to his brother what a costly dish these calf feet jellies are 
Mrs. Yeo is complaining of lack of appetite, but still managed to put away every day poultry, rice, milk, butter, vegetables, <laughs> and see, and see, and see, as well as two plum cakes, a goose, turkey, and ducks oh. innumerable, beside fowls and mutton. You go, girl. <laughs> yeah. um, also, James Kirkpatrick. I mean, I, I, I love James Kirkpatrick, thanks to you. But um, when eulogising about potatoes and how much, you know, he misses potatoes, he does also notice that actually, you know, the, the Indians won't have them. They won't touch them because they think that they're weird and odd and they're not categorised by Ayurvedic medicine. So, you know, all oh, the stuff that I just read yeah. you, they're not on the chart. You know, they're not burgers and cheesecake. Those, <laughs> they're just not there. So they won't eat them. And, he, and George Watt um, noticed at the same time that Indians thought that they caused indigestion and flatulence. So they wouldn't touch them. They didn't fit in the chart. And Orthodox Jains refuse potatoes. They don't like anything that's a root vegetable, do they? They don't well, like that's garlic right, and onions. Yeah. Generate life, you know, so it can, it can grow. You know, something can grow out of a potato. Just to conclude, as we've had Mrs. Yeo nearly dying from excessive consumption, that many of the Brits, unsurprisingly, do die from excessive consumption, having had this incredible overeating. And there are two main causes of this. One is, of course, just sort of un, uh, dirty water. Uh, in, in the 18th century, they don't really know yet how to purify water. And so quite often, the Brits either drink beer for breakfast or they have what they call burnt wine. Do you remember oh, this? Oh, this sounds so disgusting. <laughs> they put boiling gold or hot gold hot into gold wine. Hot gold ingot. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to understand this. Look, it can't be molten gold because that would kill you. But are, they, are we talking about like something that's just white hot that's been heated up I think the point is to purify. In? And the alternative to ah. that, rather than having sort of purified water and that, or wine, is just to drink more alcohol. So people start drinking at breakfast at this period. And no surprise, given that, that in the 1700s, it's estimated that a third of all hospital cases came from liver complaints. Really? Yes. And so here's, here's a typical day, according to David Burton, in Calcutta. And the writer uh, says that he has six friends who've got dysentery, and they're blaming it all on the climate. And the writer's unsurprised by their suffering when their lifestyle eating was uh, a light dip in soup, several kinds of curried meat, and generous quantities of beer and sherry. Then they go and play cricket for three to four hours before coming back for a four-hour dinner. Good Lord. <laughs> I mean, this carries on right up until the, the end of the ranch. And no wonder those cemeteries you see all over the subcontinent are so well-stocked with young colonials. Now, look, so I think that's a very good place to leave it with flatulence, liver disease and stomach upsets and biliousness. Why don't you join us for another installment as we take you through Indian food in the Raj in the 1800s and 1900s. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. should maybe make a burping noise and it's goodbye from me, <laughs> William Dalrymple. 